Well, as always, it's a great pleasure to be able to open the scriptures together and uh, to take a glimpse into the heart of God, which is what we hope to do today. There is a glory in God's goodness that uh, even overwhelms his greatness. And so we would like to take a look at that today. Um, Goodness is almost like an accelerant when it comes to God's greatness. It takes the greatness of God and it just magnifies it and amplifies it and makes it all the more delightful. And so it is our goal today to uh, be able to move in that direction. R.C. Sproul says in his book, The Holiness of God, that we want to experience God in his fullness and we want to see God's glory. And yet there is a trauma to that. But there's a worse trauma, and that is the thought that maybe we might miss the glory of God. And so that's our desire as we move forward today. In Exodus chapter 33 and verse 18, Moses says, please show me your glory. And that is certainly something that all of us should long for. Now, before we begin, just a couple of disclaimers. Number one is this is obviously not going to be a comprehensive message on that whole passage. It would take, I don't know, a couple weeks at least to process through that. But we're going to get through chapter 33, hopefully, and then just touch on chapter 34 and look at specifically verses 12 and 13, and then also 18 and 19. And secondly, um, by way of definition, uh, God is good, and God is good in all of his ways. There's no pettiness in God. There's no rancor in God. There's never a time when he has a bad day. There's never a time when he looks at his creation uh, in a way that is anything other than with a heart that is full of goodness. And so it's really not possible for anything to exist apart from God's goodness, uh, anything to, no way that we can really understand God apart from his goodness. It is one of those characteristics that permeates all of God's being. If you were uh, in the adult Sunday school class, The Attributes of God, this past summer, and we're sitting in on that class, you would understand that if uh, there was no creation, God still would be good. That if there was no people, God still would be good. If there was no universe, God still would be good. If there were no puppies, God still would be good. If there was no chocolate, uh, God would still be good. We all understand it and we get it. And so by definition, uh, by definition, God is generous. He is benevolent. He is uh, kindly. He deals bountifully with us in every way. It is his nature. It's not the nature of human beings to be that way. It is our nature to be the opposite. But it is God's nature uh, to not be antagonistic ever towards his creation. And in every way, God is infinitely and perfectly good. And that is what we're going to find that Moses began to discover. And hopefully it will be something that uh, we also will discover. So uh, verse 12 of uh, Exodus 33, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. And yet you said, I know you by name, and you have found favor in my sight. Therefore... Now, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. And I think that phrase, show me your ways, really is the pivot 
and the focal point of this entire passage. And then in verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. God is good, and he is, of course, about to approve it. We're going to look today at seven steps that confirm the goodness of God, the greatness of God that is evidenced in his goodness. And the first step, number one, is this. It's a commission. It is a commission. It is a commission from God to Moses, lead this people, verse 12a, you say to me, bring up this people. Now Moses, of course, had been enlisted by God to lead his people out of Egypt and uh, through the wilderness and into the promised land. That uh, enlistment in and of itself was a, a sign, an indication of the goodness of God, not only to the uh, people of Israel, but also to Moses himself. And for two reasons. Number one, when we are called on by God to do something that is beyond our ability and beyond our strength and beyond our desire, it does two things for us. Number one, it keeps us from wasting our lives. Wasting our lives in things that are not going to last for eternity. And secondly, it draws us to discover and to trust in this great God who is worthy of our trust. Someone has said that there are two keys to great leadership. Number one, you must be able to lead, which speaks of credibility. Number two, you must have people who are willing to follow. Well, the truth is Moses had neither one of those two things. Now, he became a great leader, but he wasn't a great leader at the beginning. The context tells us that Israel was a stubborn people, a stubborn people that were unwilling to follow, unwilling to yield to the Lord. And from Exodus, the context tells us that Moses wasn't all that great of a leader. In fact, if you look at his credentials, you find that he was a man who was pampered in the palace of Pharaoh, and that didn't work out very well. One day he decided to murder an Egyptian. That doesn't look all that good on your resume. And in the end, he was just a plain failure. And from there, he spent the first 40 years that way. He spent the second 40 years of his life tending sheep out in the wilderness of Midian, I don't know that that would look all that good on the resume, but that was his qualifications. So there was something probably in the heart of Moses as he said this, uh, these are your people, you said bring up this people, that would have also said, Lord, I was perfectly happy when I was back in Midian with all of my happy sheep, but you have called me to something greater and something different. Moses was simply being honest with the Lord that his calling, his commission, was overwhelming. Now, we know the context because we've read the story and we've heard it in Sunday school many times. There was the deliverance from Egypt with the incredible, miraculous plagues that God, God had brought upon the people. Uh, then there was the continual grumbling and dissension as God led them from Egypt through the Red Sea out into the wilderness and provided for all of, those, uh, all of their needs. But most recently, Moses had spent time up on Mount Sinai face to face with the living God. But the people had decided to go in a different direction. They were down in the valley worshiping a golden calf. 
And the question we need to ask is just how crushing do you suppose that was to God's servant Moses? And it's no, no, no wonder that he said, you said to me, Lord, you said it. You're the one who brought this into my life. Bring up these people. You brought me this trouble. Now, it's not unusual for God to bring leaders to a place where uh, they have no, um, ob- no option but to be face-to-face with trouble. But the reason that he brings leaders to that place is so that they will also spend time face-to-face with the living God. And so the commission was a sign of the goodness of God to Moses, at least in those ways. We won't elaborate on step number one. We just know that Moses had this to say, Lord, you're the one who did this. These are your people. He was accurate. The second step is a cry. And the cry is this, show me your ways. Yet you have said, I know you by name. And you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways for two reasons that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider that this nation is your people. So if you look at verses 12 and 13, you find that there are two U's there, T-Y-O-U's in the passage. And there are two fine favors in the passage. And those are bracketed on either side of this phrase that we just were looking at, which is show me your way. So you've got, you have said, or I know you, Moses, God says, you have found favor in your sight. And then in the middle, Moses says, okay, show me your ways. Then on the other side of the bracket, we read this, that I may know you in order that I may find favor in your sight. That is the heart cry of Moses. And Moses is simply asking for something that is very profound, very different from what you and I would normally ask for. He's not asking for help in leading. He's not asking for wisdom. He's not asking for strength. He is asking that he might see into the very heart of the living God. And we will discover that God is going to answer that question. There's a, or that request rather. There's a similar passage, Psalm 103, and all of us know that. We've read that. Most of us, some of us have memorized the passage. Uh, You're familiar with it. Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless his holy name. And then in verse 2, forget not all of his benefits. And the psalmist lists the benefits, who forgives, who redeems, who crowns, who satisfies. But then in verse 7, In the middle of the psalm, we find this very unusual statement, and this is it. In verse 7, we read this, God made known his ways to Moses, reflective, I think, of Exodus 33, and his deeds to the people of Israel. If you take time to parse that out, you understand that God is making a distinction, that the psalmist is making a distinction, that Moses was someone who understood the ways of God. The people understood the deeds of God. And there's a great distinction between those two things. Let me give you an example. God had just delivered Israel, uh, Israel rather, from bondage in Egypt. They had just seen all of the miraculous plagues that God used to get the Egyptians to be sick to death of them so that they could leave. God had brought them through the Red Sea in a miraculous way, 
These are all deeds. These are the acts of God. All of the people had witnessed them. When they got into the wilderness, God had brought water out of the rocks. That's a deed. It's an act. The people had all seen it. God brought manna from heaven. It's a deed. It's an act. All of the people had seen it. So the people had seen all of the mighty deeds and acts of God, but they had not seen the ways of God. And they were distinctly different. In the proof, if you want some proof, is the constant grumbling and the golden calf. So there's a difference. There's a need for us to understand that uh, there's a difference between the ways of God and the deeds of God. Now Moses had been there too. Moses had seen the miraculous plagues. Moses had seen the opening of the Red Sea. Moses had seen water come out of the rock. Moses had seen manna come down from heaven. He had seen all these acts, all of these deeds. He was not asking to see more of them. He was asking for something very different, something far greater. Show me your ways, Lord. And God was going to grant him the request. I suppose that every good pastor, every good elder, every good leader gets to the point in life where they've seen God do some great things, but there's still something inside of them that says, I need more than that. I need something greater than that. I need you to show me your ways. It's on display in Psalm 103. God made known his ways to Moses. It's on record in Isaiah 55. My ways are not your ways, says the Lord. And there is something in the heart of every leader that cries out for something more than just protection, more than just provision, more than just safety. These are deeds. Moses could honestly say, Lord, I've seen all those. I've seen your deeds. Show me your ways. A totally different request. Well, that was the commission, number one. God laid on Moses something that he couldn't possibly handle. Number two, a cry, Lord, show me your ways. Number three is a clarification. And I think this is a partial answer to Moses' request. It's not a full one. It's a partial one. And the Lord said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. I think that God has not yet answered the question for Moses. Moses did not ask, Lord, will you go with us? Will your presence be with us? Moses had said, Lord, show me your ways. And so, so far, the answer is incomplete. The first you in verse 14, as you look at it, my presence will go with you is plural. And so God is saying, I will go with you all. Uh, there's, uh, there's, There's some extra baggage that's going to go along with the people of Israel because of their resistance to the Lord. But he is saying, I will go with you all. I will do that. The second you is singular. And there's something added to it. I will go with you, all of you. But specifically to Moses, I'm going to give you something that's different. And it's rest. And so inferred is something that's very significant that God had made a distinction between Moses and the people. And the distinction is in reference to what Moses had asked for him. Not only um, was Moses to lead, but God also would give him rest. My presence will go with you all, but Moses in particular, I will give you rest. Well, years ago, um, when Max, my grandson, was still a little guy, if you can even imagine such a thing. But he was little. He was probably two years old, I suppose. 
And I was laying on the living room floor with one of those great big throw pillows. I'm not sure what we were doing, but he was in the other room. He came toddling out from the side room there, and he came over and just laid right on top of me, face to face, nose to nose, and laid there for a minute or two and then laughed and popped up and ran off into the other room. And I'm thinking, well, that's interesting. I didn't realize that he was illustrating this particular verse, that his presence was with me. That's exactly what this verse means. It means that God would be face to face with the people of Israel and face to face with Moses himself. He was just saying, I'm not a God who's distant. I'm not a God who's detached. I am a God who is right there with you. That is a blessing that all of us certainly could appreciate every single day of our lives, knowing that God is with us in that intense kind of way. So when we think about the goodness of God to his people, one evidence of the goodness of God is simply this clarification. My presence will go with you. But beyond that, I also will give you rest. We're just saying that there's a glory to God's goodness. It's a magnificent glory, and it is something that Moses sought for and was going to receive. So we have a commission, we have a cry, we have a clarification. The fourth step is a condition, a condition. Your presence is with us? Good. We like that. But Moses is literally saying, I want more. I would like more. Verse 15, he said to him, if your presence will not go with us, he already said that it would, don't bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, and is it not in your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? So in verse 15 and 16, we have a premise. The premise is... Your, your presence is assured. You promised you're going to go with us. But then there are two questions. The first question is, how shall it be known uh, that, um, that I have found favor in your sight? And it's like there's this parentheses where he says, oh, and your people too. Okay. And then the second question is, how shall it be known that we are distinct, that we are favored, that we are unlike all the other people on the face of the earth? And then he kind of puts that in parentheses. Oh, yeah, I... Uh, and your people too. God was specifically speaking to Moses' heart. What he was saying is, we're going to set out from here as you commanded us to do. Our question is this, are you really going to set out with us? Are you really going to be our God in an abundantly good way? I think that uh, as we try to think through this passage, there's a danger of oversimplifying it. But the question is easy enough, but it is a brazen question. Moses is going way beyond the pale when he says to the living God, give us more. We love your presence. We're glad that your presence is with us. We're glad that you're going to be face to face, but we want more than that. Can we continue to depend upon, count on <clears throat> your abundant goodness and favor in an exceptional manner, regardless of how we act? And God was essentially saying, yeah, that that's how good and great my goodness is. There's an incredible glory to God's goodness. Well, if we stop for a minute and um, think about 
what was going on in Exodus 33, I mean, the Lord really had no reason at all to bless these people. None at all. They had not followed him. They had not obeyed. Even Moses himself. They were pretty bad actors for the most part. And so you ask why, right? I ask why. You know, why would God say yes to Moses, given his track record, given their track record? Well, you know, why does God bless the righteous and the unrighteous together? Common grace. Why does he do that? Why do the heavens declare the glory of God to the righteous and to the wicked? Why does he do that? Why is God patient with everyone and not willing that any should perish? Why is that? Well, reasons, twofold. There's two reasons specifically why he would say yes to Moses, number one, and to us. Number one is because one of the characteristics of God is goodness, right? It's lavished on those who don't deserve it. It's lavished on those who cannot repay it. So it's part of the nature of God to bestow goodness. But there's a greater reason, and it's this. That God himself has a vested interest in demonstrating and displaying goodness as part of his glory. Psalm 145, man shall utter the memory of your great goodness. The Lord is glorified in his goodness, and he's not going to hide it under a bushel. He's not going to keep it a secret. So Moses was not out of line at all to ask the Lord to display his goodness in a glorious and magnificent way. It was bold, but it wasn't presumptuous. Moses was saying, give me more. Well, the fifth step was a confirmation. A confirmation. We find that in verse 17 where he says, I will do it. I will do it. I will do it. Is it a wonderful thing to know that we can go to the living God and ask him for something and know that by disposition, he's going to say, I'm not going to do that for you. That's not what he says. By predisposition, he says, I'll do that. I will do that. Number of times, five times in this passage, we hear the living God say, you know what? You found favor. I am good with you. I know you. I will do it. I will do it. This is the last time. This very thing, verse 17, this very thing I will do. And uh, God's response is not only that I'll do it, but but, but that why he would do it. He gives two reasons. And the the first reason, it's kind of subtle. Moses, it's because you have such a heavy commission that I would like to do this for you. No, he probably, he did have a heavy commission, but it was not that. How about because you have such a difficult journey ahead of you? Well, he did have a difficult journey ahead of him, but that was not the reason. Uh, The reason was simply because of my goodness. Now in verse 17, both of the pronouns are singular. They're speaking, he speak, God is speaking directly to Moses himself when he says, you have found favor already, already. I know you already. Now that matters because God's goodness to us is always previous. It's always first. God God bestows goodness long before we ask for it, long before we recognize the need that uh, the need for us to have it. God is just saying, not only will I do it, I've already done it. It's part of my nature. I'm a God who is good. And the good news for you and for me is that it's not dependent on achievement on our part. It's not dependent on faithfulness. It's not dependent on standing. It is dependent on the nature and the choice of God. 
God bestows his goodness because he is good. Now you say, how do you know that? Well, we know that from verse 19, where God declares, I will be gracious on him whom I will be gracious and I will have mercy on him who I choose to have mer- upon whom I choose to have mercy. I'm just saying that there is a, a there is a, a glory in the goodness of God. So there are two reasons why the confirmation was wonderful. Number one, the people of Israel were utterly unworthy of God's goodness. All of them, including Moses. Remember, Moses had this little anger management problem that he was dealing with. He wasn't all that eager to speak on behalf of the living God. Uh, Numbers chapter 11, he had a little bit of a pouting problem when he stands before the living God and says, I'm so weary of the people. Lord, kill me at once. So Moses wasn't any better off than the rest of the people in terms of deserving the goodness of God. He had issues. The people had just prostituted themselves before a cow for crying out loud. So none of them had any merit before the living God. But Moses is told in verse 17, this this very thing I will do because you, Moses, have already found favor. Because you, Moses, I already know by name. So we have a commission, we have a cry, we have a clarification, we have a condition, a confirmation. And then number six, in verse 18, we have a chutzpah. It's spelled with a C, but it really sounds like chutzpah. And it just means audacity times 10. It means to be brazen by 10. That Moses is asking for something that is absolutely beyond the pale when he says, you know, I'm glad your presence is with us. I'm glad that you want to show us your goodness. I've got a greater request. Show me your glory. Are you kidding me? I mean, God is speaking to the living God here at a very inappropriate time in the history of the nation. Show me your glory. We expect that God would rebuke Moses for his terrible impertinence, but apparently God loves it. And apparently God's delighted with the request, show me your glory. Well, Lee and T. Freeman was a man's man. He was just one of those men that uh, you just saw that, you knew he was a man. And he was my grandfather, and I loved him. And I also feared him, to be quite honest. Uh, He was an Irish guy, and uh, he would lose control. He'd get angry at times. And I can tell you, it's something you didn't want to be around. But beyond that, and the human frailties, we all get that. All of us are part of that. He was kind of a good blend, at least humanly speaking, of greatness and goodness that are held in tension with each other. And uh, so one day I, I was, uh, I headed up on the hill up behind the house. We had a pond And uh, I'd gone up there. I was going to throw rocks into the pond, kind of bored, didn't know what to do. So I was doing that. And he was uh, up on the backside of the pond uh, with his bulldozer doing something. I'm not sure what he was doing. Another reason, by the way, that you just have to admire the man. I mean, he had a bulldozer. And I'm thinking to myself, good night. At some point in a man's life, every man ought to have his own personal bulldozer, right? Just, that's what we should have. So ladies, this afternoon when your man says, no, don't go there. But but that's just what it is, all right? So anyway, um, everything was fine. I was having a good time throwing rocks uh, into the pond until I heard the bulldozer shut down. 
And he climbed down off the bulldozer and he was headed over and he was headed straight to me and he was not happy. And I'm like, oh my word, I don't, I don't even know what I did. And he came over to me and he grabbed me by the arm with that vice grip hand of his and uh, said to me, Jerry, I told you to stop throwing stones into the pond. If you want to throw stones, I'll take you up to the stone quarry and we can throw stones into the stone boat all day long until your arms fall off. And I'm like, and it was quiet because I didn't dare to speak in the presence. And uh, after a minute, he looked, I guess my eyes must have been the size of grapefruits. Not sure what happened, but he stopped and he said to me, uh, what, Jer? And I'm like, Papa, I did not know that you did not want me to throw stones into the pond. And you could feel the grip loosen. And you could tell that that things were going to be okay. He patted me on the back and he said, yeah, I'm sorry. You're the man or something like that. I don't remember exactly what it is. All of us have had experiences like that with human beings. And there's something about severity and greatness But there's something more magnificent about goodness, something glorious about goodness. And that's what God is trying to explain in the passage. There's something about about the glory of the goodness of God that makes us appreciate the greatness of God all the more. I'm reading a book right now called Rejoice and Tremble. It's uh, entitled, The Surpassing Good News of the Fear of God. It's written by Michael Reeves. It's very good. He speaks about the fear of God on the one side and the goodness of God on the other side. And he describes the tension that's in the middle. The, the fact that as we experience both the greatness of God and the goodness of God, we're drawn into the middle. And there's something about that that just enlivens our souls. Because it's way better than just greatness in and of itself. We were singing earlier today. I wrote it down. Holy, holy, Lord almighty. There's something about that that we want to see and experience. And on the flip side of that is good and gracious king. I mean, anything less than those two things held in tension would crush us. And anything other than that would not be worthy of praise. And so both of those things are held in perfect tension. He goes on to say this, the nature of the living God means that the fear which pleases God is not a groveling, shrinking fear. Rather, it is an ecstasy of love and joy that senses the overwhelming kindness and magnificence and goodness of God and therefore leans on him in staggered praise and faith. We're just saying that the greatness of God is great. And the goodness of God is good, but the two of them together are glorious. And it should cause our hearts to rise. There's a glory in God's goodness. Well, as we look at the passage, there are two things we need to understand. Number one, we must know that God is great. Psalm 145, great in deeds, right? He's a... a, Can't read my notes. Oh, seen in God's deeds. Uh, It would be rough for us if that's all there was because we wouldn't dare to draw near to God if all we saw was his greatness. And the second thing we must know, we must know that God is good. He's good to all. And that is seen in God's favor. Moses saw both. Moses saw both of them. I am great. You cannot see my face and live. But he's also good. 
I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. Perfect greatness, perfect goodness. Now that's the gospel, isn't it? I mean, that is the gospel. God will not overlook wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's something he should not do. He wouldn't be a worthy God if he did. But he also will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. And so the gospel tells us that there's really only one reason why we cannot or need not fear the, uh, the greatness of the living God, and that is the goodness of the living God displayed in the Christ Jesus on the cross. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, for in, him, in Christ Jesus all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form, and through him God reconciled all things to himself, making peace by the blood of the cross. We're just saying that there is really a glory in God's goodness. Well, the final one, the seventh step is closure. I mean, Moses is bold and brazen and says, show me your glory. And he speaks it, not just to somebody else in the room, but to the living God himself. God's greatness is enhanced by goodness. And the closure is these two things perfectly blended goodness and greatness together. And he said, in answer to your question, show me your glory. I will make all of my goodness pass before you. A goodness that's validated by his name, right? And a goodness that is veiled by his mercy. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. Moses asks the question, actually just has the request, show me your glory. God answers him by saying, I will, (laughs) I will, I will do it. How many times in Exodus 33 do we read this phrase as God says it? I will, I will, I will, I will. We're talking about the glory of the goodness of God. Stephen Charnock says this in the existence and attributes of God. The supreme joy of God is in his goodness. The greatest gift and expression is his greatest gift and expression is the display of that good, uh, goodness. A gift that God is all too eager to give. The greatness of God. The goodness of God. There is glory in God's goodness. Well, our response, there's only really one that's worthy of us. Find it in chapter 34. We're not going to to unpack it. We'll just read through it quickly. But notice in Exodus 34, the names for God, because they're going to change. So in verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud, stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Verse 6, the Lord passed before him, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, a God, Elohim, merciful and gracious, slow to anger. And he goes on to describe these wonderful characteristics of God. He's saying, Yahweh, 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 this covenant-keeping God who draws near and never abandons us and never leaves us. And then in verse 9, there's a name change. Because we're not seeing Yahweh any longer. We're seeing a different name for God. It is the name Adonai, the the Lord, the master, the one who has total sovereignty, the one who oversees all things, the one to whom I must give an account. And Moses says to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, sovereign Lord, please let the sovereign Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. 
It's important because this is what happens anytime we see the goodness of God. We move from the greatness of God. We see that. We see it in creation. We see it all around us that God's great. We move to, to the goodness of God. We're amazed at his goodness. We're astonished at his goodness. And the response to that is to marvel at the greatness of God. Because his greatness is amplified through his goodness. We see greatness, his deeds. We're astonished. We experience perhaps holy fear. We see his goodness. Our estimation of God rises and it leads us to an even greater appreciation of God's glory. Since I have found favor, Moses is saying, I bow. Well, one of the truisms of life is that the longer you live, the less exciting life seems to get. And that's not an exciting thing for those of you who are teenagers, but trust me, it's pretty much true. One of the reasons is because <clears throat> you've already experienced so many things. All right? So uh, whenever they say, well, let's do that, well, I've, I have already done that. The second reason is because it takes a whole lot more effort to do it than it used to do. I mean, for example, take a banana split, right? You want to have a banana split? Yeah, I've already had about 1,327 of those. Well, yeah, we, we can go ahead and do that. And, you know, it'll take me about 45 minutes to eat the whole thing. So I'm not so sure I'm excited about that. Or if you decide that you're going to head into the stratosphere on the SpaceX rocket. Yeah, I did that last year. And I'm still sore <laughs> a year later. So, so life seems to go that way. And yet, right, there is something in every human being that's just hardwired for something that's adventuresome. I mean, something bigger than a roller coaster, but there's some, a roller coaster, right? I really like to ride on the roller coaster and I'd really like not to. Kind of want to do it, but I kind of don't want to do it at the same time. But we're hardwired for that. And it's because the image of God resides in us. We just can't help escaping the desire for something that is just thrilling us to the point where we just almost shake. Well, we want something that terrifies us. We kind of don't want it too. We know that it'll probably scare us to death, whatever it is. But on the other hand, I don't want to miss the thrill of it either. I've been there before. I've done that. But I never want to hear myself say that, specifically when it comes to the goodness of God. I think heaven's the opposite way. I even question my theology on this one if you want to. But theologically, it just seems to me that it's the nature of God that, that heaven would be the opposite of the way it is on earth. That we're not going to grow, oh yeah, I did that in eternity ago. It's not going to be that way. It's going to be the opposite. That, you know, what we did today was really wild and, and it just thrilled me to my soul. And I'm happy about that. But what I'm more happy about tomorrow God's got something even better. And the next day, it's going to be even better. And beyond that, and I think eternity is just going to be increasingly magnificent, specifically as it deals with the nature of God. You can argue the point if you would like to, but at least think about the premise, especially when it comes to the goodness of God. There is a glory in God's goodness. There is something about God's goodness that, that will just become ever increasingly marvelous, wondrous to us, 
We'll never comprehend the goodness of God. It will always motivate us. It will always move us. I mean, when, when are we going to ever get used to the goodness of God? When is it that, that we're ever going to lose our enthusiasms for the marvel of the goodness of God? You know, when we come to Exodus 33 and 34, I think that's the message. That is the message. We get a sense that that's kind of what God's up to. He's done all these incredible things for Moses, for the people of Israel. There are a whole lot of more fun things and difficult things in the future. But in the midst of that, there is a marvel that's beyond the telling. It is simply this. And Moses got it when he asked this question as opposed to any, other, of, any of the other questions he could have asked of God. Please show me your glory And God responds with something that probably made his soul tremble for joy. I will. I will. I will make all of my goodness pass before you. There is a glory in God's goodness. Moses said, please show me your glory. God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Please bow with me as we pray. Loving Father, We both desire and fear this prospect of seeing your glory. But what we fear more is the prospect that we might miss it. It amazes us to hear uh, you respond to the request, show me your glory, that that you would say, I will. We would pray that you would lead us to see it as well. Your greatness, your glory, your goodness. We marvel over it. And pray that you would cause us to marvel, not just now, but forevermore. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.